This Week in Tech. Now's your chance to get caught up on all that's happening in the technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now, here's Gene Destro. From the Russian troll farm that planted fake news on Facebook and Twitter to sway voters in the 2016 presidential election to a data analytics firm secretly using Facebook data from 50 million people also to influence that election, tech's shiny facade continued to crumble over the past few weeks. And news like that will come as absolutely no surprise to our guest today, author and tech entrepreneur Andrew Keene, who's been called the Antichrist of Silicon Valley for his book, which poke holes in the fabric of the technology that's woven its way into almost every aspect of our lives today. I became acquainted with Andrew Keene several years ago when I reviewed his book, Digital Vertigo, How Today's Online Social Revolution is Dividing, Diminishing, and Disorienting Us for USA Today. His new book is called How to Fix the Future. So we asked, what's wrong with the future as you see it unfolding today, and why do we need to fix it? Well, the future always needs to be fixed. That's uh, the nature of things. Uh, nothing is ever perfect. Things are always broken. But we're living today in a particularly disruptive, turbulent time. Deeply structural forces are, are, are changing everything about how we live, how we work, how we relate to one another. And, the, and they're mostly bound up with the digital revolution. In my book, I argue that we're living through, in, in some ways, the same kind of traumatic, disruptive period as as we did in the middle of the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution. When the Industrial Revolution came around, a lot of people lost their jobs, but what I understand is that more jobs were created than were lost, but with this revolution, those jobs just are never going to come back. There's a possibility that there won't be any jobs. Most economists predict that a lot of the jobs we take for granted about the Industrial Age, everything from drivers and fast food workers to highly qualified professionals like doctors and lawyers, uh, are going to lose a lot of their livelihood. And it's just not clear what we're going to do. So it is a great challenge, but nobody knows. And anyone who claims to know is misleading people. So what are your recommendations then? My recommendations are firstly to acknowledge that this theoretically is a huge issue, as big an issue as we're going to live through in the, in the 21st century. What are we going to do in an increasingly automated, smart age? Secondly, I think we need to examine some of the more radical solutions. In the industrial age, we came up with a social security system that protected workers and the unemployed against ill fortune and the ravages of, of, of economic cycles. Today, and I discuss this in my book, we need to look at guaranteed minimum income and other social security initiatives that will try to take care of people who won't have work in the future. We also need to reinvent our education system to focus people's minds and skills on the very things that computers can never do, uh, which is have agency, which is to be empathetic, which is to be creative. It's clear that the education system we have was designed for the industrial age, and it's turning out people who aren't suited to the disruptive, sort of always-on nature of today's economy. So we have much to do, and much of it is a long-term challenge. This is going to take generations to work itself out. When you talk about a guaranteed minimum income, it reminds me of something that I read in one of Jaron Lanier's books a few years ago. He was projecting either the government step in and do something about it or there's going to be bloody revolution because people won't have any way to make a living. I mean, what do you say to something like that? Well, Jaron is a very prescient thinker. He's a good friend of mine and I'm a great admirer of his work. But he's certainly not the first person to say this. And there were the similar sorts of fears throughout history. In my book, I integrate a reading of Thomas More's Utopia, his great 
16th century work about how to fix the future. Karl Marx also wrote about it in terms of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Giran is, of course, the writer in, in the future for us, because if people aren't working, if everybody loses their jobs through the automation revolution, then what are they going to do? They may sit at home and wear 3D goggles and um, imagine other worlds. They may take drugs. They may go on social media. They may sleep. They may watch television. Well, they may be able to reinvent themselves, but to reinvent themselves, to be productive, to be creative, even if they're not doing so within the formal constraints of the economy, requires not only education and sort of a social support system, but also some redistribution of tax so that people will be able to afford to eat and clothe themselves. This is a particularly problematic issue in the U.S. with its hostility to any kind of redistributive tax. I think in Europe, in Asia, people are much more sympathetic. So but perhaps America will have to follow the rest of the world as opposed to lead it, as indeed they're doing with many of these other digital reforms. Do you have any hope that the people who actually are in charge of a lot of this technology are going to start taking some of these issues more to heart or that governments are going to be more sympathetic? I mean, how are regular people going to be able to cope with all this change? And where do you think help may be coming from, if at all? I think that help is coming in lots of forms. I think Silicon Valley is beginning to radically change its tune. We're having the rise of a much more accountable sort of multi-billionaire class. Uh, Mark Benioff is one example. Jeff Bezos, I think, needs to step up to the plate and already doing so in his investment in the Washington Post and his willingness to sort of step forward as a philanthropist. Even Travis Kalanick, the former CEO and founder of Uber, who has a very bad reputation, has recently announced a venture fund focused on investing in technologies and companies that create jobs. Governments are also stepping forward. We're seeing all over the world governments looking sympathetically in an open-minded way at the guaranteed minimum income. In my book, I go to Switzerland, which was the first country which actually had a formal referendum on it. So from Switzerland to Finland to Brazil to Canada, governments are looking at this stuff. And they're also looking at ways that consumers can be protected in this increasingly kind of hostile environment in terms of their privacy and in terms of passing antitrust legislation that will protect consumers and citizens against the power of incredibly powerful multinational companies. You traveled around the world and you talked to various people, and I think that you came up with some things that you thought were helpful or at least inspiring. I wonder if you could share a few of those. We're seeing in the EU attempts to control the monopolies, antitrust regulation. We're seeing in Germany attempts to make the platforms accountable for the garbage, the lies, the propaganda that's published on. We're seeing in Europe also the passing of laws to protect consumers' data and privacy, the General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, so a lot of stuff happening there. When it comes to innovation also in Europe, in Singapore, and in the U.S., you have companies beginning to experiment with new business models that aren't exploitative of our data. We have the rise of a new class of kind of ethical technologists, ethical designers in the U.S. led by a guy called Tristan Harris, who is arguing that software developers need to sign a kind of Hippocratic oath to make sure that they aren't consciously designing products that are addicted. I mean, perhaps the place where the most interesting stuff's happening is in Estonia, you know, the little 
Baltic country on the northeastern edge of Europe, where all sorts of things are being tried. We're seeing the appearance of the first kind of digital democracy, a new social contract between governments and citizens over data and privacy. How do you see the future in terms of people keeping any kind of sense of privacy with really prying eyes everywhere? That's a great question. I used to fall back on the kind of tried and trusted solution, most clearly articulated by Louis Brandeis, and, and, and Warren in their famous article about the state having or the law having a responsibility to protect individuals' privacy in the face of ubiquitous technology. At their time it was photography, now it's network technology. I'm less actually optimistic about this. I think we have to acknowledge that the cat is out of the bag, for better or worse, when it comes to privacy and data. And the Estonian model kind of acknowledges that. More and more is known about it. Um, and as we have these devices, these supercomputers we carry around in our pocket that tell everyone where we are, as we live in our smart homes and drive in our smart cars and live in our smart cities, so data is going to become increasingly ubiquitous, or so if you like hyper-ubiquitous, it will be everywhere and everything. We and ourselves, in a sense, will turn into data. I think we need a new kind of social contract between governments and citizens. In Estonia, they're pioneering this, where... Everything is done online in Estonia, so more and more is known about individual citizens. And when the government is, wants or chooses to look at our data, it has to notify us. So what we need in this new world is transparency rather than privacy. Now, of course, the counter model to this, the real nightmare, is what's happening in China, where everything is known about individuals, where the government is deploying the most sophisticated technologies, AI, facial recognition technology, to pry into the minds of its citizens and punish people who are who, who aren't politically correct and reward those who are politically correct. So the, the two models, the, the, the attractive model is the Estonian model, the unattractive one is China, and that's the great choice in the network 21st century. And that was author Andrew Keene talking about his new book, How to Fix the Future. You can find it on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. That's it for today. See you next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news and find more online at WAKR.net.